We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights will also be in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Indiana Indy Greg of We Do. Indy has built a career as both a tech entrepreneur and a singer. She made a name for herself in tech when she set out to fight music piracy. As a musician, she believes musicians and other artists should be paid for their work. As a result, she founded Kernutz, a platform that paid musicians when their music was downloaded, a forerunner for today's streaming music platforms. Indy's most recent venture is WeDo, a neo-bank for the freelance economy. Consistent with her mission to ensure people get paid for their work, she sees WeDo as a platform that breaks down barriers for entrepreneurship and freelancers by providing access to the tools today online knowledge workers need, like platforms that help them deliver their services and actually get paid to do so, which is really cool. We've seen some of these things start to pop up, so this is going to be really neat to talk with her about that. So now, let's get better together. Indy Greg, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jari. It's great to be here. It's Well, it's great to hear you and hear your background of all the beautiful birds chirping over there in Spain. We, I know. <laughs> the Indie Spa. Yeah, the Indie <laughs> Spa. We talked about that a little bit before we started recording. I just love <laughs> I love that calming sound because, you know, during the summer, birds wake up early. And if you're a light sleeper, like you wake up when the birds wake up. And usually that's, you know, dusk or dawn or whatever. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, or the roosters. <laughs> or the roosters, right? So it's just really cool, and um, I'm glad we could connect because uh, it's really fascinating. You know what you're doing right now over at NeoBank, and we do, and you know you you're a musician. I dare say rock star. <laughs> you like my second, <laughs> maybe third rock star I've had. I think second legit like rock star. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm always, I'm always fascinated by people that take their creativity in one area, one genre, move it over to another area, another genre. And, you know, what you're doing over at uh, Neobank, I just think is really darn cool. And I cannot wait to, you know, dive all into that. And it does have a lot to do with what's going to happen with capitalism in the future. and And just like, there's lots of things changing in the world. And I think you're at the the nexus of how this is going to work. But before we get all into all that sort of stuff, as I always like to say, (laughs) why don't you uh, tell me how you got to do what you're doing today? Wow. You know, life has a really long journey and there's lots of windy roads that, that, that bring us to wherever we are in our lives. And I think it's really important to pay attention to the wins and the losses and 
Um, you know, I'll, I'll be 50 in August. So I feel as though I, I can talk about that a little bit more than I could back in my years as an early entrepreneur. But um, I come from the creative background. I've always been inspired by technology. And uh, I started five different businesses. I've been a founder multiple times and I, I work consulting startups. So what you're doing um, in promoting entrepreneurship is really of great interest to me. And I really think there needs to be more people spreading the word and helping the next generation of entrepreneurs. Um, but I come from, yeah, a technical technological background. Um, probably one of the biggest things that I achieved in my kind of career path, aside from rock stardom, is actually fighting pirates. And the whole point of fighting the pirates was to level the playing field. So um, out of that kind of conundrum, um, you know, I had that history of going up against the Pirate Bay and then eventually, uh, you know, the government started to pay attention to, to us and to me. And we launched a platform called Cartoons. And this was before, this is really in the early days of MySpace. So it was before you had iTunes and Spotify and other solutions. And we kind of had to be groundbreaking in terms of really understanding that you can't just let musicians and artists and, you know, people creating, you know, movies, film producers, uh, not be able to monetize their goods and just sharing it as if that was okay to do. And that was some sort of a promotional thing that wasn't going to work because creativity needs some capital and whether that's human capital or monetary capital, it still needs some capital in order to survive if you want quality, right? So we launched Gertunes. We had 14 and a half million users. We had labels. We had publishers. We had tons of awesome artists. And uh, it was really, you know, we didn't know where we'd end up, but it was really important to take a stand. And uh, what came of that is... Afterwards, I got really involved in helping founders and helping startups and helping young entrepreneurs. And it led to, well, my new my new project, which is which is we do. And yeah, that's how I got here today. Lots of winding roads, three kids in between that. Now they're all grown up and lots of other stuff. But, you know, life does what it does. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm 52. I turned 50 in February. So, um, <laughs> oh, well, there I, you go. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, you look back, you know, what's sort of interesting because I always tell people, uh, you know, in my 50s, I want to pay off all the hard work I did in my 30s and 40s. And they're like, what do you mean by pay off? And I said, well, there's a couple of things, right? Obviously, I need to eat. Well, you know, me, I probably if you if you hear this show a lot, the, the money aspect of being an entrepreneur is not really what I'm in it for, right? I just, mm-hmm. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are in it to create to like build an independent world that completes them. I love freedom. Like for me, it's like the freedom to do what I want to do. I will almost be in poverty <laughs> to be like, not telling me what to do. So, um, <laughs> so I can really resonate with the fact that, you know, artists need to get paid. Um, I think, you know, the whole Napster stuff and even Metallica back in the day when they were fighting Napster and, you know, all the rights and the piracy um, they were, of course, Metallica was the biggest one and the Napster thing was the biggest one, but it was, it is nice to hear that there were other people sort of, you know, maybe not as prominent or at the time were just still grinding away because I think that, 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 that importance of the monetary value of an, of art and, and an artist. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, and some, even some artists don't like the business side of making their art. Mm-hmm. Right. And even authors, I know a lot of authors and boy, they're the worst at it. They will write a hundred billion words. <laughs> None of them will be publishable <laughs> and no one will read their good stuff because, you know, once you write the book, that's half the battle. The other half is getting people to read it. And, it, and I'm hundred percent convinced on this, that any endeavor, any creative endeavor, the amount of time, that, time and effort it takes to create whatever it is, you should spend the same amount of time, effort, and money to promote and sell what it is. And a lot of yeah. people are like, yeah. Jari, just go viral. And I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> so, wow, <laughs> there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, so let, let's, let's talk about we do because that's very innovative when it comes to this whole idea of 
um, getting freelancers, people that create things, getting them paid on a platform that's fair. And because there's a lot of these platforms, even the, 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 the hardcore um, financial incentives that are against these kind of things coming up and having, you know, kind of power to the people, so to speak. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of what you're working on. Yeah. So um, for the last year, a little over a year, um, we've been developing a a neo-banking system that's cross-continent. So uh, we're regulated in the United States and in Europe and the UK. And fundamentally, we, we decided to take an approach of what if a bank could offer a seamless software as a service platform um, for free and what do they need so freelancers are online all day every day a lot of them are service providers who provide content to their end clients and customers through webinars through live face-to-face meetings they're delivering their you know services pretty much live and uh, so we kind of took a look at that and thought well you know, if half the world by 2025 are going to be part of that gig economy, the freelance economy, and, and you know, just this past year, that was a $1.2 trillion market in the United States. The way I was looking at it is, you know, how do you remove the barrier of entry? And with a pandemic like COVID, for example, in this scenario, a lot of people lost their jobs and many, many people are hurting. And how do you level the playing field and give people opportunity without putting roadblocks in their way? And when you think about the average, say, virtual coach or or whatever, they are, um, you know, they have a lot of barriers to entry. Uh, First of all, price. It costs money to actually have a Zoom account and do things professionally. It costs money to invoice people, to have QuickBooks or to have Calendly and all these tools that people use. And that all adds up. And if you remove the barrier to entry and give them a free entry way where they can actually perform and deliver the help that they need to do to help people, educate people, do whatever they do online, you remove that barrier and you give them a free way to to earn their living, we don't need to charge them. We can just simply let them bank with us. And so that what that does is cut out the middleman and, and, and give people a, a safe space to, to operate. And then, you know, we can build more tools on top of it. So it works pretty well. <laughs> Interesting. So basically building a freelance artist bank, I guess, would, would that yeah. be a good characterization? I guess more like um, building a bank that supports the creative economy. Hmm. So, you know, most people, like if you sell anything online, you're going to pay 2.9% plus 30 cents to Stripe or PayPal or somebody, right? And what sites like, say, Upwork or Freelancer or People Per Hour, any of the freelance sites do is they take a commission on your earnings. And a lot of times that's 10%. Um, other platforms charge you. It's pay to play with like Udemy or a lot of the education platforms. And there's no need to do that. Freelancers have it hard enough. They have gaps in the timeline from when they start a project into project, you know, uh, and it's very difficult for them to, you know, to survive if someone's taking a 10% cut, plus they've got to pay their taxes. There's all sorts of, of things. And if you're charging them on top of that to use a service when there's actually no need to. You know, I always say, if you want to beat the bank, you need to be the bank. Mm. So creating mm-hmm. something that's actually conscious that will actually work for the people is really important for me. Um, you know, if we're delivering more entrepreneurs who are delivering more help to the world and, and creating knowledge bases and exchanging knowledge and, you know, gifting their expertise or, or charging for that expertise, if that's helping to elevate other people in their lives, their business, their mental health, whatever it is they're providing, then, you know, that's that's a first step to helping to make the world a better place. Secondly, you know, the freelance economy is great in terms of the, the impact that it has uh, globally on, you know, our cities, on the air we breathe. You know, less people on traffic jams, more people working from, you know, remote places and not work, moving around quite as much. Uh, that, that does have a, a carbon impact, you know. So, yeah, that's where we are today. And uh, hopefully it has an impact on millions of people and uh, and hopefully it helps those people help more people. And if we start doing that, we're going to have a better planet. I mean, that's just the way, you know, that's the way the world works. 
Right. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, people receive it and enjoy it and give us feedback and we can make it better. I mean, we're a tech company. So, um, and then we have all the infrastructure from the banking system. Uh, we have four American banks who are behind us and a couple in Europe and one in the wow. UK. So we're, you know, we're pretty well covered in terms of insurance, the whole FDIC, everything to do with banking reconciliation. Um, you know, one of the guys who, uh, founded this work is on the founding team with us is David Jakes, who is the founding CFO of PayPal. He was a treasurer of Silicon Valley Bank. We have Dan, who was from City, ran family offices. We've got a really amazing team. Samantha Glover, who's our information technologist, just really brilliant people just started to say, hey, we like this. We're going to join you. We didn't have any money when we started. I'm just saying, entrepreneurs, you know, there's some sweat, you know, we paid our before we, uh, totally. before we had any totally. money in the till. So, um, totally. Totally. but yeah, it's been really fun. It's been a great journey. Yeah. Yeah. I had a boss that used to say, never let money get in the way of progress. Just, yeah, you can't, you know, because a lot of times the money lags, the idea, the genesis of it, you know, I think. No, I agree. Totally. Yeah. It's just interesting. Cause that's, it's it's fascinating that you're building a bank, you know, and having a different model as opposed to a service fee, you know, like, okay, pay this percentage. You're just like, well, no, no, the deal is you bank with us. We make money off, I'm assuming the interest in loans and whatever kind of infrastructure. I, I don't know much about banking, but what I do know yeah. is, yeah, they've got all the money. <laughs> they seem to make it all too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we don't even need to do that. We don't have to do, we don't have to exploit people. We can be very ethical and still do better off than your average SaaS. And then on top of the software as a service model, you know, with premium, when you're making money and we can create better tools, you may want to upgrade and we can make your experience even better the way you serve your clients better. But there's a baseline of, for equalizing the playing field for everyone. And, uh, you know, I feel as though, uh, we're we're going through a transition in in history right now, uh, where technology is really exponentially having an impact on our lives and the way we communicate and the way we we serve each other. And as automation goes forward, and we're dealing with you know a lot of artificial intelligence, a lot of robotics, um, knowledge exchange is going to matter. And it doesn't matter what kind of knowledge you could be a guy who knows how to dig a well you know, somewhere in say Africa or in, in India or, or knows how to like take care of sanitation or water sanitation. You might be sharing your knowledge to the next village or the next, you know, whatever that development cycle is, most of them have a mobile phone. Uh, no matter where you are in the world, that's the one thing that connects most of us and they have access to their mobile phone. So sharing knowledge and being able to monetize that should not be a barrier to anyone. In fact, I think it should be a human right, um, to be quite honest. I mean, I feel as though that's everyone should be have have at least the opportunity to earn a living and to sustain themselves well. And we're hoping that we're part of that opportunity. Yeah, there, there's a, oh, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but there's a group here in the U.S. called Right to Start. And I'm going to, I totally forgot his name and he's going to, he's going to get mad at me. No, he's a nice guy, <laughs> but uh, him and. You can drop it in. Like, yeah, I will. Yeah. I'll be like, and ass. it's <laughs> insert name here. Um, <laughs> so he was, so right to start. Um, I got introduced to him through John Deary, who is the center for American entrepreneurship, uh, which He's he's so interesting because he's not an entrepreneur. He's a policy guy, but he's running a, the Center for American Entrepreneurship as a startup. And mm -hmm. what I found is just like so fascinating is there are, I think, and you probably see this, and I think the world sees this, and it, it, it's creeping more and more towards this. Well, where being able to start a business, you actually have to have some amount of privilege. Uh, that mm. amount of privilege is socioeconomic knowledge, whatever it is, that there's something that there's a barrier to entry. And this barrier is, I mean, the government makes this barrier. Uh, it's, yeah. one of the, it's one of the interesting things. Well, about it's through education. 
Well, yeah. through education, through laws, through lobbying, like in the U.S., right? Like, do you really think that the drug company, like they all say, oh, yeah, this whole drug discovery thing is so cumbersome. Oh, we need to have less regulation. They're totally yeah. full of shit because they benefit tremendously from having this brick wall in front of all the little players, right? And yeah, that's the most extreme example, but you can just roll that down to other little things. Like here in California, you know, if you want an LLC, it's like an $800 tax, just 800 bucks. Like it's just, here you go. Well, that's you may think well, 800 bucks, that's not that much. Well, yeah, if you're just starting out, I mean, that is like, there, there's just certain, they, they don't, it doesn't scale right. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. And, and right to start, as well as the Center for American Entrepreneurship, what they're trying to figure out is what are the laws and structural problems in the U.S., specifically in the U.S., that prevents yeah. people from starting businesses. And the most important one is what you guys are working on, is access to capital and banking infrastructure. And so yeah. this is one of the most critical things because you go to a traditional bank and you're someone that doesn't have any credit. You have this new business idea. You know, they, they say, oh yeah, show me your business plan. You're like, business plan? I, what the heck is that? Because yeah. honestly, you don't really need a business plan if you're like a freelancer and you're like, hey, I know how to dig well. In, example, I know how to dig wells. Like I say, hey, you need a well? And they're like, yeah, here you go. Here's some money. Okay. I'm a business person you yeah. will never get any working capital from a real traditional quote unquote bank with that kind of, no way. Yeah. They won't, they'll be like, who are you? <laughs> right. So yeah. it was the access to capital and banking infrastructure and then education. Yeah. Which was the, the things that actually you would think the most entrepreneurial country in the world is actually not that good at actually Europe yeah. and some of the Scandinavian countries are better. So I'm wondering do, is, is, so you're going to build the, this bank. You're, I think you're going to launch it in the September timeframe. Are you going to then, as this process, like build up like the education process, like these, these things that really, mm. you know, yeah, I can give you the opportunity to bank, but I also need to teach you a little bit about like, what does this mean? Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that they can go ahead and trade as a freelancer without having a company to start. So, you know, you can give yourself a brand and you, all the, all the money it takes to actually start a real business, an LLC or, a, or a C Corp, or if you're an S Corp, if you're an organization, whatever that is, you can get started. And as long as you're paying attention to, you know, the costs and you're keeping a record of that, um, you can convert that into the business as, you know, uh, expenses and expenditures that you, you know, against that business that you start, as long as you do that within a timely manner, um, that all counts. So uh, one thing that's really important, though, that a lot of freelancers don't do is they use a personal bank account rather than a business bank account. Um, you don't have to have a business number. You don't have to have a Delaware C Corp or whatever it is, you know, an LLC in your state to start uh, separating those expenses from your personal account into your business. And so, and just that, that simple education is, you know, if you're, if you paying things from your personal account, make sure you keep a record of it, show that that's part of the business, keep a tally on that so that that all counts towards the investment you've made into your business. If you are spending money on it. And what we're here to do is say, Hey, if you run a service business or you sell something, you can sell it live in real time, take a payment, ship your goods or ship your service or perform your service through our online SaaS and also create a community around yourself um, and monetize it, you know, and really share knowledge. And you can do that for free and, you know, and, and, and work with, you know, the goods and, 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 and the following that you've already developed maybe on other platforms and, uh, you know, we're, we're agnostic. You, you go and bring people along from Instagram or send people to Instagram or send people to other platforms. You know, we don't, we don't care. We just want you to be able to monetize and we want to provide a system with, through which that if you did eventually, you know, start earning like a really decent sizable income and you needed a loan or you do need mortgage, we can connect you to ethical lenders and put you on a better financial trajectory 
And, you know, we're already working and talking to people who are in this, you know, kind of field of, of financial education. I was talking to um, Nina Fernandez the other day. She started up something called Seed and Legacy, where she's really lobbying the government uh, to create the financial uh, education in, you know, primary schools and secondary schools. And it needs to start from an early age to educate people on how to run their own business because entrepreneurship is not going away anytime soon. Oh no, It's just unsustainable. Oh, no. We don't have big enough, the old factory system moving people through, it's just no longer going to happen, you know, um, yeah. and jobs are important. So creating your own job or, you know, using, and this is a great opportunity for people to capitalize on their passion to really go deep into what do I enjoy? What kind of knowledge transfer can I do or what good or service can I provide and how can I get the, that word out? You know, I, I think it's, we're in a really great period of history where a lot of things are accessible. We just need to make them more accessible and educate people. You know? Yeah. So I, I think love we're, what you're Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, that, <laughs> and well, I, I mean, well, I appreciate that. that. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> I, I also, what's interesting is I was, I had done some research on, uh, business formation. Like, so the, for all you like history nerds out there, the first corporation in the entire world was created in 1600. That was not <laughs> the first corporation that was not from a King, uh, was in 1600. And I think it was the East India trading company. First one that sold stock. So 1600. And then there was this boom in quote unquote businesses and stuff. Right. And mm -hmm. Around and that boom had continued on until about 1970, 1980, where the amount of businesses were actually decreasing that are, were being started, right. and it troughed in 2000, roughly. Mm. Um, this is U.S. or if, well, no, actually, I think it's generally. And so what I've what I've noted, like, so there was this consolidation of labor and creativity, and you can see this in productivity, right? So what happened with productivity? the manufacturing, the plant worker, the productivity of the industrial revolution up until, you know, 2000, 2010 has, was 10Xing. I mean, it was just incredible how much more productive people would be, but they weren't really getting paid like that, right? The corporation, yeah. and you can see it, the corporation was taking all the money. And yeah. what you're talking about with knowledge workers, this is the next productivity wave where, there's going to be an inflection point, like who gets Absolutely. the productivity, <laughs> right? Is, it, is yeah. it big company or is it the individual? And my personal yeah. belief is it's the entrepreneur. It's the, you know, I believe in the it sovereign. It needs to be. Yeah, it needs to be, right? It I believe in the, right. I believe that, in this. that goes for data. That goes for, you know, it has to be that that is the only solution. If we don't empower the individual, we're not going to be able to produce the, the, the type of economy or the living standards that that we once saw. And we're not generating a better world for our children or posterity if we're not protecting the individual. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I fully, fully believe in that. There's a place for corporate, you know, corporations. There's a place for big industry. Um, you know, and we're seeing that uh, already in social networks and, and, you know, the mining of data. But that data belongs to you. You're the individual. You should have insight and leverage in your personal life in order to create a better society. Otherwise, this disruption, this disconnect, this kind of bipolarism that we have in society today, that will continue and we'll destroy ourselves. You know, yeah. I mean, it, that's that's the reality. And we're going to have to come together and realize that very quickly. And I think that even governments must be aware of that. If they can create better GDP from citizens who are happy, healthy and owning it, we're all better off. Yeah, uh, the, the people at the top are not necessarily that's the reason why there's so much downward pressure. Um, mm. You know, you can you can see that you can see that in the even during COVID, which we're still in, but like the, the insanity of the stock market oh. and all of this, like completely asymmetrical, of course, some businesses completely cratered, but some were just mm -hmm. 10, 20 X what they're doing, you know? And, and, yeah. and I, and, and I like your thought process on this because I, I, I believe in like the sovereignty of the individual um, mm -hmm. and, and what that seems a little kooky, but Basically, I, I, I feel that people should be able to have an independent life that completes them without the constraints of 
undue kind of process or, you know, we, we need some rules because, and I'm not, not libertarian or anything like that, but we need yeah, a yeah. framework. Right. I, you know, I always like to say we need, so we need government to say, what are the rules of the game? And we all got to agree mm-hmm. on the rules and we all got to play by the rules. And you don't yeah. see that with big corporations. I mean, and, and, and yeah. time and time again, I mean, that's the reason why the, the entire G7 was trying to figure out, well, we need some sort of minimum corporate tax because it's the shell game. They're just moving money yeah. around and we're all not been on, you know, it's not cool. And, and this attitude about business and entrepreneurship and this maximizing shareholder wealth stuff, it started in the 70s, 1970s. Yeah. Before then, you know, business people were part of their community. They benefited mm-hmm. their community. The community looked up to them. The community gave them the opportunity and a little bit of leeway, you know, to kind of like go out on a limb and do some stuff and then say, it's cool. Like we get it, but that's mm-hmm. being taken advantage of in a huge way. I mean, just, just it's crazy. Right. And I agree with you. I think people are going to be like, I own my data. I own, I own the output of my labor. I mean, there's always those things where you don't own, you know, you don't own your, your the output of your labor, but it's not true. I don't <laughs> think I, whatever, like I, like, like to your point, you don't want, you don't want to create some art and then someone steal it and yeah. you not get paid because yeah. it's easy to steal. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, society has been conditioned that digital art, digital content is free. Yeah. And yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it being free to an extent, but you know, there, there still needs to be a leveling of that playing field. And I think, you know, there's a certain amount of art and music and everything out there that you can offer for free to a certain extent, but maybe a live performance or uh, that you're doing online virtually, you know, you should at least be able to, to create streams of income for yourself. If, if that's what you're, if that's a value you're providing to society, you know, and education is a big one. Um, education is, is a huge one, that yeah. transfer of knowledge, you know, if, if teachers are all starving to death, where's society going to go, right? I mean, let's think, you know, it's, it's reality, right? Coaching, teaching, tutoring, uh, any type of knowledge transfer that, it, that makes someone's business more efficient, life coaches, mental health, doctors, lawyers, accountants, all, all of these people are knowledge transfer, you know, businesses, and a lot of them are solopreneurs. A lot of them are, are, you know, freelancing. And a lot of them are, you know, they need a way to to uh, deliver their services. And we just don't have a very streamlined approach to that. And that goes back to empowering the big individual. They're not big companies like Apple or Facebook or Google or, you know, Hewlett Packard or whoever, you know, is out there, Microsoft. Um, but they are people who provide very, very, very fundamental, important services to society. And uh, we, we can't, we can't allow or condone the breakdown of that just because, you know, shareholders are king. Um, I think you can have yeah. both and I think you can create win-win situations for everybody without sacrificing the health and the joy and the happiness and the, you know, the livelihoods of, of individuals. And that, I think the power to the individual is very important and that will help sustain even the corporates. The more knowledgeable they are, the more investors you're going to get. And, you know, that grows. We're going to, we're, we're heading towards what, seven and a half billion soon. And then, you know, we're growing exponentially. So there's going to be plenty of money in the world. Like nobody's got to worry about that, you know, and there's going to be corporates and there's going to be new technology and innovations that come through. Uh, but we just need to make sure this wide gap and it's kind of, you know, economic disparity isn't such an issue and it really is a huge issue. I mean, yeah. there are people really hurting, really hurting in the, in the most, you know, financially advantaged uh, com- country on the planet. I mean, come on, <laughs> America's like pretty much like the winner of capitalism all, all across the board. So there, there can be a bit more leveling there. And I think it's, I think it's very, very fundamental to how we see our future for sure. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think it was, I think it was the center for American entrepreneurship that did a study on net, net positive job growth. Like what drives actual creation of jobs? And it turned out it was startup companies 
in the first five years create all the net positive jobs that they net positive mm. big corporations were net negative <laughs> absolutely yeah no you're right right and it's pairing it back pairing it, you're too fat pair it back, pair it yeah. back and that that causes layoffs or they're shutting down plants because it's not not economically efficient. viable it's yeah. better off in china yeah. in asia you know well look yeah. at it now like you can't do that anymore. This is the thing I think that really solidified it for me when it came to uh, offshoring. Cause I mean, I used to do, I was a semiconductor engineer. So I used to work in the mm-hmm. semiconductor business for like 20, 20 plus years. So we all did all our fab in Asia cause it was just cheaper. Right. And we had some fabs mm-hmm. here in the U S and back then we had about 30% of the world's manufactured semiconductors were done in the U S okay. 30% is not great, but the rest of it was Asia, literally Taiwan, China, Singapore, Korea, you know, Japan, but like hardcore China and, and Taiwan. Now it's mm. 10% of the world's semiconductors right. made in the US. And you wonder, well, why are all these shortages of semiconductors? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but primarily it's because the um, the demand, like when the demand goes up and you only have like a few players, right? Yeah. They fine. can't, they can't, they, there's no competition for supply. Like, so you yeah. can't supply it. So prices go up. It's, it's obvious. And, yeah. and I know now a lot of times in, uh, the government now is trying to figure out how to bring semiconductor manufacturing back, which seems, oh, well, you know, it, it's an expensive endeavor, but it's one of the most automated ways to make something because you have to, you, 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 can't, you have to be in a clean room and, and usually yeah. you want to use robots, but it's a very highly skilled manufacturing process. So yeah. The, the whole argument that it was cheaper in China and Taiwan was just laziness to be 100 Especially if they're manipulating supply and demand because you're, you're going to pay for it in the end, you know? So yeah. I, I think that was a big problem. You know, I guess if you yeah. think back to the Reagan-Thatcher years, you know, yeah. offshoring a lot of manufacturing in the United States and especially in Great Britain, um, that kind of the outcome of that, you know, at the time we're like, yay, go, you know, Go Reagan, go Thatcher, but then the aftermath of that moving away from you know kind of those staples of American job culture, uh, big shift. You know, I mean, I know we had that movement of technology in the dot com afterwards, and you know we are where we are. But when right. you look back, you know, bringing it back home, when you when we kind of created this kind of hunger in China. It's just, you know, where capitalism needs to, to get a little bit more conscious about, you know, what, what moves we, we make and when and understand. I mean, we got to protect our people, you know, and we yeah, have to do it. It's competitive. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. At, at, at the expense of the, of the tiny guys, at the expense of the little guy, you know, yeah. in a lot of cases. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. My friend, my friend, Phil Dillard, he talks about this. Um, he calls it four sector capitalism and mm. he he's pretty much an expert in four sector capitalism. What he's trying to figure out is building the processes and the infrastructure to create four sector capitalism in all of these places in the country that don't have man, you know, manufacturing's gone and it's kind of depressed mm-hmm. um, because what his, his, his thesis or the, the hypothesis of four sector capitalism has to do with, Nonprofit, for-profit, and government coming together to create a local ecosystem or a local community where it's sustainable and thrives in its local local area. So yeah. Yeah. now doesn't mean global trade's bad. I mean, actually, free trade is good when it's actually free trade and not subsidized and dis. I mean, the reason why everything's yeah. so cheap from China is because we don't tax it or levy it. It's a yeah. whole complicated mess. I mean, part of the Part yeah. of the reason I'm like, yeah, macroeconomics is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> I think it's like all about the local, <laughs> you know, I mean, and of course people give me bash, you know, what do you know about economics? Well, not, not a lot, but I know what doesn't work. <laughs> and it seems to me <laughs> that we got to focus on our local communities and build strength in those local communities and be resilient to local problems. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. just look at when the, when that ship, you know, botched up the Suez Canal, like, the entire world shut down for like a couple of weeks because one stupid ship got sideways. All commerce yeah. stopped. Yeah, <laughs> All, it's crazy. I mean, this is stupid. Like, and that's why what? localization is so important. Yeah, it is. It's stupid. 
and, and again, yeah. I'm not saying. And a friend of mine, yeah. the government's trying to fix that. But yeah, it's crazy. A friend of mine is is working on opportunity zones, and that that really nails straight into what you were saying about local, yeah. uh, going local. And and at least now, you know, that legislation has gone through about opportunity zones, so um, property investors can invest in local uh, buildings and get them relatively cheaply and uh, be subsidized to help build up local communities. And I don't know if you've, if you've heard about, it. I think it's under the jobs act, even yeah, where they're I've heard starting a development bit. in the United States. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And yeah. that those, those entrepreneurs need banking and education and someone to take a chance on them. Cause so for me, I always think like this entrepreneurship ship is like pulling balls from an urn. Right. So <laughs> if, if you've got a decent level of competency and a good job, I mean, a good idea, like, and you hit the bar, I always say you hit the standard, you, you go over the bar, like you over the threshold, what, whatever it is. I don't even care what it is. Mm-hmm. My whole hypothesis is you take all the names of those companies, you put them in it, you, you, you write them on a little ball, you stick them in an urn and you randomly pull <laughs> balls out. And that's what you fund. Yeah. And everyone like will be like, <laughs> yeah, right. And everyone's like, oh, well, Jari, you really just don't understand venture capital. Like it, we do a lot of hardware. Like, no, you don't. No, it's, it's random luck. So stop like thinking you're all high and mighty. It's luck. You could probably get 80% the way there, but that other 20% is market timing, team, luck, hustle, absolutely out of your control. I mean, hustle, maybe not, but yeah. You have no, you cannot guarantee an outcome. You can only guarantee, you can only put in your effort to make it happen, right? Yeah. And so it's just yeah. like pull balls out of an urn. Like, <laughs> what does it matter? <laughs> I get a little. Yeah. Well, I think, though, you know, uh, with venture capitalism or, or any type of investment that you're making in a new entrepreneur or going back to like kind of the, the focus of the young entrepreneur or new entrepreneurs is, is grit matters, grit and value. And, you know, you need to be believable. And that has a lot to do with your purpose. If like you were saying earlier, if it's all about money, you were talking about, you know, money isn't, you want freedom, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get an entrepreneur, they have a sense of purpose that there's a reason behind what they're doing that makes them get up every morning and pound the pavement and go for that. Then you're going to have a higher chance of success. But you're right. It's still placing on a bet. And, I, you know, venture capitalists hedge their bets. They're going to get so many winners for so many losers. And, and you need as an entrepreneur, you need to fail sometimes. It just yeah. don't spend a lot of time doing it. Do it yeah. as quickly as possible so you yeah. can get learn from it and then move forward. And I, there's a lot of value to that. But you're right. VCs, you know, they're. They're investing money. They're doing it across, a, you know, a portfolio and you just it's, it's difficult, but you know, there's some out there, they're striking pretty high and some of them that aren't. I mean, so some of them do have it down to some sort of a science. I don't know. Right. I mean, if you you look at, yeah, if you look at the majority and they do all these studies, a lot of them don't make a a return, but that's because it's a hard thing to do. Like, again, it's, a little bit of luck, a little, there's skill. I mean, there's skill in everything. I mean, I think the way I always like to think of it is like effort matters and you can put out perfect effort and not get any results, but without perfect mm-hmm. effort, results will never happen. So it just won't because you only control yeah. the effort you put into it. Like there's some yeah. things that are just going to be against you. And I think that's some of the reason I, I like the, what you're doing to try to remove those barriers so that Everyone has a level playing field is pro I would say fair playing field would be, I think the word yeah. I would use because when yeah, everyone's that's... sort of like at the same fair level playing field, or just they're playing by the same rules, mm-hmm. then you start to see a lot of this, Oh, you know, luck and stuff happen into it. And I think a lot of people get nervous with that. They're like, Oh, you mean I'm not as talented as I think I am. That's part <laughs> of the reason all of these laws exist. I mean, honestly, like that's why all these lobbyists spend lots and, you know, billions of dollars getting laws passed that they're like, well, we we had to make sure that this was, you know, competitive. And you're like, no, you're rigging the game (laughs) because you got the money and and you can't tell me you're not because you've got the money to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. So. What, I guess what, that's one of the advantages, though, of a big country like the United States is, 
where you do have lobbyists, you always get a pushback. So there is a push and shove involved in it. And we always hope that eventually we'll come out sort of even, even though sometimes it feels like the odds are against us, you know, depending on where we're entering the market or what we're doing. So, you know, that's one of the, I guess, one of the wonderful things about a democracy or living in a republic where, you know, you have those uh, pushes and pulls and the, the people's voice matters. Um, I mean, you got that going for you. So that's good. Well, I mean, that, that that's why everyone, when they look at the United States, it's like, well, it's like this, these 50 states bound into a loose republic with quote unquote, weak central control. And every state's run like a little country. I mean, literally, yeah. it's a, it's, it's like the Wild West chaos monkeys. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it really like they, you can see that in just how each state dealt with COVID. Because every yeah, state true. is responsible for their own response. It's up to the governor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the governors have a lot of power, right? So we have done 50 different experiments on how to deal with COVID. Some people think that's mm-hmm. crazy insane, right? Yeah. We're cra- I mean, <laughs> Americans are crazy and insane, and we're a bunch of independent yahoos. Like, we don't like to be told what to do. We're like the ultimate, right, that way. But the, <laughs> but the thing that's interesting, right, is that we have the freedom to move between states. If we don't like something, we can move. But each state is all these experiments. So what works in one state, of course, may not work in another state. And of course, people's lives are at stake. But that's the way it's set up. And yeah. the unified theory of, oh, we're going to just unify all this stuff. That's all that stuff is. We These are our recommendations. Now, the federal government can like withdraw fund federal funding for certain things, but generally mm. they're pretty autonomous. So, but it's funny because yeah, it's just yeah. this massive experiment that we hope doesn't go off the rails. It is crazy though, you know, because most people don't see the United States as that it, it's kind of packaged to us. If you're overseas, it's packaged to us like in through Hollywood or through a movie. Yeah. And then like, we just get like the headlines from, you know, coming from Washington, DC or New York or California or, yeah. or Texas. And, and people forget there's like, you know, 46 other States in there that they all have like different ways they deal with things. You know, sometimes someone will ask you a blanket question is like, well, what are the laws on this in America? And I was like, I don't know which state are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. Which the laws in California are totally different than New York and in Louisiana than Kentucky or Illinois. I mean, it's, you, you just don't know, but we all feel like as Americans, we all feel like we're part of this, you know, homogenous yeah. country with the same ideas or, you know, like the, yeah. the same systematic brainwashing, I guess, or whatever it is. Well, I mean, know? yeah. I mean, it's bound by the constitution, right? I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is probably like, I would say, you know, the nexus of it, right. E, plur- e pluribus unum, right. Like from the yeah. one it, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting because we just have a different attitude about it. I mean, we are a country of immigrants. Mm-hmm. We're immigrant first, even though we bash them, that's mm-hmm. how we grow. That is how this is a success. No other yeah. way. Everyone has yeah. come here from somewhere else. And honestly, over time, we're just all going to realize that we're just, you know, we're all Americans. But it's just interesting anyway. But, you know, yeah. it, Indy, it's been great. The to entrepreneurial chat. education, though, for those in, in immigrants. And that's why I really love what you're, you know, what you're working on here with your podcast, Jerry, is that is the one thing that can be done across mm-hmm. all 50 states mm-hmm. is actually provide that education and more and more, you know, I think it's also mentorship mm-hmm. entrepreneurs who are at the age, maybe that we are mm-hmm. the information we can pass on to the next generation. And that's why I love what your podcast is all about. And um, that's so important. That's so critical. And more and more people need to just take some time out and help educate that next level of entrepreneur and just let them learn from our mistakes so they don't have to go through quite as many because yeah. god knows they're going to have oh, yeah. tons of hurdles uh, make, anyway make, right? make your own don't make the same one that crazy uncle jari and crazy aunt indy made make yeah. new ones <laughs> wow oh, it's been great talking to you i really appreciate it this has been so great i love it we didn't even talk oh, about like you're like a rock star and everything maybe we'll get to that another time <laughs> another time we can uh, we can do another we, we'll, we'll invite you over to our um, to our podcast podcast as well jari so oh, that'd be great no yeah. it's been wonderful
Appreciate that. Really it's been great. You know, good luck with your launch. Good luck with what you're trying to do. Stay in touch. Let, let us know how we can help. And uh, yeah, we'll talk later. Fantastic. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Indy, for being on the show. I just that was a great conversation. <laughs> like I think I told you before, we're uh, you're the one of only two or three rock stars I've actually had on the show. So thanks again for being on the show. Now, as promised, here are the actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Indy. As a seasoned entrepreneur in different industries, Indy believes in sharing her experiences and knowledge, but she says be ready to make your own mistakes. And this is totally true, right? I mean, this whole show is about educating and inspiring the next generation of entrepreneur. But I can tell you, there's some things you're just going to have to learn on your own, right? The As um, Marvin says, the brick in the face. You sometimes need that in order to learn some stuff. Indy also firmly believes that the future is freelance and entrepreneurship, that to write to make a living, sharing and teaching what you know is a human right. And, you know, I think this is one of those things that we're going to see a lot more of. You know, there was this whole movement called Right to Start, and there's obviously the um, Center for American Entrepreneurship, which I've interviewed John Deary about. So I think there's this huge movement towards this. It's a very powerful movement, and I think a very powerful thing. Indy's experience also demonstrates that you can build a business based on principles, Kerhoots began with a desire to take a stand against piracy. We do similarly is based on a belief that entrepreneurship should and can be available to all. And I might have screwed the name of that first company up, um, but I put a link in the show notes. You can take a look at that. Um, really kind of fascinating, right? That this is like the first, you know, her, 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 you know, that one platform trying to figure out this piracy thing back, you know, back in the day when all the uh, other uh, free sites, right? So it's really powerful to have principles, and I you can really tell that in the interview. So there you have it, the actionable insights that I learned from Indy. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.